0: You're listening to a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HT Smartcast. Hello and welcome to a new episode of 1947: The Road to Indian Independence, a special podcast series presented to you by the Hindustan Times to mark India at 75. The nationalist movement was at a crossroad by the end of the 1920s. On one hand, the British had shown no inclination to give Indians the right to self-rule and continued with their repressive methods. The Simon Commission Report of 1927 had drawn fierce opposition. On the other, the anger against colonial rule had been building up. Indians were coming up with their own constitutional proposals, most famously in the form of the Motilal Nehru Commission. And a newer generation of Indian nationalists, under the mentorship of the Mahatma, had assumed leadership positions in the Indian National Congress. In Lahore, in December 1929, the Congress finally declared that its goal was Swaraj, complete independence. The Congress decided to launch a civil disobedience movement, and they turned to the only man who could mobilize the masses, the Mahatma and the Mahatma turned to the most unusual commodity and the most unusual method to challenge the empire. He decided to defy colonial salt tax laws, and he decided to do so by leading a march. On March 12th, Gandhi and 78 Satyagrahis set off from the Sabarmati Ashram to Dandi, a nondescript village in South Gujarat on the coast in what was to become one of the most iconic moments in India's freedom struggle. To discuss the Mahatma's innovative political approach, his connection with Gujarat and the march, we are delighted to welcome to this podcast one of India's finest and most eminent Gandhian scholars, Trideep Suhrut. Trideep ji has been the director of Sabarmati Ashram. He is now the provost of SEPT University. He has been responsible for producing and translating a lot of works on Gandhi and we are delighted to welcome him to this podcast. Trideep, let me begin by asking you to paint us a picture of the Indian freedom struggle in the late 1920s. The non-cooperation movement had ended in 1923. The Simon Commission report had been rejected. What were the nationalists doing and what was the Mahatma doing in this phase?
1: Thank you, Prashant. Um, let's just step back five years and look at 1922. I think there was great effervescence, the kind of effervescence that India had probably not experienced as a mass movement during the civil disobedience, both the non cooperation movement and the Khilafat. The coming together of both the causes, both communities, had created a possibility that we had not visualized. Uh, we had not imagined that to be possible. And then Chauri Chora happens. And despite almost everyone telling him that these things happen in a mass movement, This kind of violence, unprovoked violence, is something that happens in all political movements. Gandhi both withdraws the movement and withdraws from politics itself. Let's not forget that he then goes into jail on a sedition charge and released only because of massive uh, health issues he's operated upon. And even after coming out of jail, he observes a kind of a jail-like civic death. And that's the period when he retreats within himself and does two very important things. Uh, Writes the autobiography and does the lectures on the Bhagavad Gita. So it's a kind of moving in that he does just prior to the 1927 Simon Commission. He's actually on a sabbatical when the Simon Commission comes and uses the word sabbatical. He is on a writing sabbatical like you and I would want to be and saying, I am going to sit in the, inside the ashram and produce my autobiography. And only thing that I will do is to speak on the Bhagavad Gita. So he's this person is gone deep within himself. Uh, the political movement has lost um, direction. There are, There is uh, within the nationalists, there is a faction that we call the Swaraj group, which thinks that this decision of the Congress to retreat from the political ground is not been a wise one. The Congress needed to to push forward with the political agenda, also enter the le- legislative arena in whatever form, the electoral and legislative form. So there are be there are divisions. And then comes the Simon Commission, charges people up somewhat, not entirely, doesn't turn into a massive movement of any kind, but it the resentment has begun to build up. And that's when the Purna Swaraj declaration happens, but having declared yourself absolutely free, you don't know what to do. Um, you have you have declared to yourself primarily that you are now free and that expression of freedom has to come. And that's when they turn to Gandhi and say, now that we've done this, what does that freedom look like? And Gandhi's first response is, I don't know. And again, retreats into the Sabarmati Ashram. And that retreat seems so puzzling that it actually brought poet Tagore out of Shantiniketan. He came to Ahmedabad to confer with this person and say, what are you thinking? And Gandhi's first response in that meeting is, there is darkness within me. I'm praying for light. And when that light comes, you will be among the first persons to know. Jawahar comes and says, Bapu, there was this grand unfurling of the flag that we did. And again, there's no response. So Gandhi, when the Congress turns to him, there is lack of clarity. There is lack of clarity also because Gandhi is not confident about himself. Let's not forget this. He is still worried whether a mass movement would lead to another set of violence and whether he will have the capacity to contain that violence should that happen. So he is actually also figuring himself out, so to speak.
0: Since you mentioned the autobiography, I must tell our listeners that to mark the 150th anniversary of Gandhi's birth, Trideep Ji helped produce a critical edition of his autobiography, My Experiments with Truth, and I would urge all of you to pick it up. To return to this theme, uh, Trideep Ji, was Gandhi depressed? Or was this a quiet moment of quiet reflection? I think he wasn't depressed. He was
1: perplexed. And it's important for political leaders... To admit to themselves and to people that maybe I did wrong. I think that capacity of a leader to say, maybe I erred. Maybe I didn't think this thing through. Maybe the tiger that I unleashed needs to be reined in. And I don't know what that beast looks like. And that's really what 22 did for Gandhi. So, yes, there is reflection. There is doubt. Uh, I don't think he's depressed. But there is uncertainty which which is a rare thing for a political leader to admit.
0: And then once the momentum for the civil disobedience movement begins and all leaders start coming to him and asking him for a way out, how does Gandhi finally arrive at this decision to begin the march?
1: So I think the idea of salt comes to him almost unexpectedly, but not so unexpectedly. Let's Let's realize two things. One that the British colonial government was obsessed with salt. It's a strange commodity to be obsessed by. Uh, In terms of its total revenue on taxation, the salt tax was a negligible thing. But the colonial government's desire to control the trade in salt was so immense that it had actually a position called the Salt Commissioner of India. And interestingly, the man responsible, one of the persons responsible for founding the Indian National Congress was the Salt Commissioner of India. The British government actually had thought through a plan. Now, the way the geography of salt production is that almost all of India's salt is produced on the western coast of India or western part of India. They thought that they did two things. Any community that traded in salt, And these were nomadic community, pastoral communities, which carried salt from Western India into other parts of India, were declared as not nomadic or pastoralist, but habitual offenders. The great punishment that came with the criminal communities or the Criminal Tribes and Caste Act of India, lot of the communities that traded in salt were part of that. That's one thing that we should remember. Second, they came up with this grand idea Part of me wishes that they had actually carried it out was to build a wall, starting from what today is parts of Afghanistan, going all the way up to Chilka Lake in Orissa. It would have been larger than the Great Wall of China. And all of this to prevent the salt trade. Then somebody in the administration thought this, saying that this is a crazy idea, it doesn't make sense, you know, let's do a cost-benefit analysis. It didn't really make sense, so they came up with the idea of planting a hedge. It was a seven hundred meter wide hedge with check posts, which started from Quetta, went up to Chilka Lake, and uh, there's a great book called The Great Hedge of India, written by a librarian, uh, a British librarian called Roy Moxham, who tried to trace this entire hedge. So the British were obsessed with salt. So was Gandhi for completely different reasons. It was not the political economy of salt. It was what it did to your body. And we know that Gandhi experimented with saltless diet way before this entire agitation came to him or the idea of salt as symbolizing oppression and freedom both came to him. So he was somebody who had worked with the idea of salt and saltlessness much longer. He knew other things. One that every living form needed salt, animals, plant and human beings. And there was no class distinction here. There was no religious distinction here. There could not be a Muslim salt and a Hindu salt and an upper caste salt and a Dalit salt. It had to be salt. And then there is the entire idea of being true to one salt, which every, every community has. The idea of being faithful is to be true to one salt. So all of these things come together for Gandhi in almost a flash, as it were. And he says, well, I will break the salt law. And everyone, without exception, including Sardar Patel, Nehru, the British including, thought he had squandered an opportunity. Who is going to get excited about a band of people walking to Dandi? Uh, picking up salt and, and saying, we are now free. Uh, so I think there was great deal of, um, I think the British were overjoyed and the Congress deeply perplexed.
0: You know that those responses now in hindsight or even after the march uh, com- was completed look so naive because Gandhi was on something that nobody realized. So when he started the march, how did he proceed? How did he prepare for it? How did he mobilize people? Or did he just start walking from Sabarmati and people just kept joining him?
1: No, he didn't do any jobs. He, he actually prepared the country. He said three things. Um, there are a series of articles that he began to write in his journals, um, both Navjeevan and Young India um, and said, this is what the SALT law is. And these are the various ways in which you can break the salt law. And these acts of disobedience bring you this level of punishment. So he's telling people, do what you're capable of. I understand that not all of you can go to jail for six months, but can you go for one week? Can you do this for one day? Can you produce salt at home? Because it said production of salt, buying and selling of salt, consumption of salt, or even Participating in what we will call participatory observation while this illegal activity is going on would also fetch you punishment. So he, he tells people that there are various ways in which you can disobey. Then tells you these are the ways in which you could actually produce salt because the central India and north India does not produce salt nor does south India. So how how are they to participate in this act of disobedience so this is what he tells them then he says none of you will do anything till I tell you this has to be an orchestrated movement till I break the law and then give a signal to the rest of you you cannot so don't preempt me uh, and don't don't get enthusiastic just watch as to how this unfolds. So there is an orchestration. This is almost the theater. What we call the political theater is being designed, constructed, and orchestrated. So that's one thing that he does. Second thing that he does is tells the Congress, you stay out of it. This is not for you. The second phase is for you. The first phase is mine. And I will choose the 78 people who will walk with me. These are people that I have trained, I have selected, I know the kind of discipline that I want out of them and these are the only people capable of that discipline. This is not an excitable Congress crowd that needs to come or onlookers that need to come. Please don't join the march. If you want to join the march, you can join it only for 12 kilometers after which you retreat. So the relay that happens, it's the 78 which walk together and thousands join and this is again. Gandhi's political sense. He tells people that if you enter that village, their notion of hospitality would demand that they feed you. Up right? You can't enter. So you you walk me from the edge of your town to the edge of another town. But don't enter it. You retreat. So there is an orchestration that happens. The other thing that he knows is that the British would not want to arrest him uh, once he started walking. But they would use the native princes, probably, to arrest him. So the entire route is made in such a way that he walks only in the British territory. So it does not fall the responsibility of some helpless minor principality in Gujarat to say... um, no, Gandhi entered my territory and I arrested him because he had no permission to do so. So that there is also very clear making of the route that happens. That is done by Sadhar Patel and Mahadev Desai. Two people who know Gujarat very well, know central Gujarat. The idea also was that every village that they stopped at night had to be large enough and had to have enough surplus to feed and house 78 people and others that might walk in There would be media, all of that. So, the spots are very, very carefully selected by Sardar and Mahadev. You know, so the idea is spontaneous. It's a brilliant idea. But then he creates a political theatre out of it.
0: And it also shows how strategic as well as tactically sharp the Mahatma was in terms of his preparation.
1: Absolutely. You can't run political movements only on inspiration. Take us through the march
0: he starts out
1: very interestingly he rehearses even the the starting out of the march so the photograph that we have of all the people lined up in sabarmati ashram under the tamarind tree right is of the previous evening it's not of the the morning of the march so the previous evening like what you and i would you know, we're made to do in our school before a great visit is to line up and practice as to how we're going to greet people or how we're going to walk out. He gets all 78 of them to line up behind him with, you know, himself and Pandit Khare there with his Tara, And that's the photograph taken. So you can imagine that they're also creating a formation the previous evening at 5.30. And the next morning, um, I don't think he expected to be allowed to walk. I think a part of him told him that the British would actually not allow him to walk. And he would be arrested. So there were other instructions left as to what is to be done once he's arrested. But he also knew that once he started walking and if he were allowed to step out of the ashram, then the British pride would not allow them them to, to arrest him midway. They will have to allow him to complete it. And I think what happens is that early morning on 12th March, there is, Ahmedabad actually comes out in streets and they start walking with him, completely unexpected. Gandhi had expected some excitement, but this level of participation, excitement is not something that happens. So the first thing that he does is that he realizes that if 20,000 people were to start walking with him, it is an untenable march. Just. To feed those people, to cre- create sanitary conditions for their living, bathing, defecation is impossible. So, unscheduled, he addresses them in the riverbank under the what was then called the Ellis Bridge. He stands on top of a table and a chair is placed and he gets up and says, now henceforth, we, this is what we're going to do. You walk with me up to Aslali, which was the first halt, and then come back. And that becomes something. Before... He had also created another band of people, which were his students from Gujarat Vidyapit, which was called Arun Tukdi, which was their job was to do the research assistance. So they went before one day to the village, collected all data: number of people, men, women, land holding, number of cattle they have, salt that they eat. Um, try and persuade the Mukhi to say, I will resign when Bapu enters. So, I, you know, we are going to give up our little positions within the British administration. And before he entered, he had a data sheet before him. So when he addressed the, that village, he was prepared to answer some of the very specific local questions. Uh, so part of the address, when we read all the speeches along the way up to, to Dandi, there is something very specific addressed to that village, that area, that community and their practices. And then there is a larger thing that happens. So, you know, I don't think uh, in the history of political movements in the world, uh, one would find that level of preparation, a minute attention to every detail. It's a rare thing for,
0: for world politics. Indeed. I mean, I had also not realized how meticulously this had been planned and how it actually operated to perfection almost. Gandhi was 61 at this time. Wasn't he tired of walking?
1: No, I think he was a great walker. Walking was a mode of thinking for him. Walking is almost a mode of being for him. Uh, And we have all these descriptions as to how much he enjoyed walking. Um, He was somebody who knew London intimately. For three years and could think of restaurants and places that he'd visited and libraries which were warm and the libraries which were cold, right, because he had walked the streets of London. That's the same thing that he does to Johannesburg. That's the same thing that he does to Durban. He, he inhabits the place by walking it. So he was somebody who knew
0: the art of walking. And as that march progressed and as Gandhi walked, the world started paying attention suddenly right the international world media started, descended doubt, the skepticism of his colleagues faded away and suddenly the british were also a little taken aback by what this had generated isn't it i think by
1: the evening the previous evening jawahar is the first one to begin to sense that there's something large happening so he uh, he does what one would expect the young jawahar to do which is that um, each 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 marcher had a bag in which they were to carry all these their their requirements, including a diary. Yeah. So he went and pinned the Congress flag on each of those bags, yeah. including the, the bag that Gandhi was to carry. So the next morning, Gandhi notices that and puts his shawl in such a way that the badge is not seen. <laughs> but I think Pandit Nehru sensed that there was something very large about to happen and By second day, things have changed. Um, There is no doubt. There is exuberance. There is hope. uh, There is excitement. And, And it's an excitement in which all of us, because walking is so human. That's what makes us human is the ability to walk. Our capacity to walk, think, act. And walking as a form of protest is so beautiful. I mean, if you really look at today, we don't walk to protest. We sit down to protest. We do dharna, which is to bring things to a standstill. You know, stillness is unnatural for a lot of people. Movement is natural. Gandhi is telling people, be yourself and just flow and let me lead you. And let your doubts melt away. Let your differences melt
0: away. And and it's, it's an epic. Indeed. So on April 5, he reaches Dandi. What happens yeah. then? So there's a very beautiful
1: uh, film that not many people have seen, which was actually made by Surat Sarabhai, who was Ambalal Sarabhai's son, who was a great one with a camera. And he's made a film which is not unfortunately in the public domain, which is within the family's archives. He's not interested in Gandhi. He's interested in what's happening around Gandhi as to how From a management point of view, what are the managerial principles and logistics by which this march is happening? For example, he, there is, there are shots of the Satyagrahi camp being erected in, in Dandi. And along with that, there is a camp of the British sergeant being erected because the police has to be there in equally large force. And there are no, so, Toilets being dug, water coming in bullock carts, uh, the sergeant smoking, the Satyagrahi spinning. Uh, so it, it, it's a mela. It's a mela there. And Gandhi had expected now that he's reached here, they would arrest him. Somewhere on the on the way, he had also declared that I'm not going back to the Sabarmati Ashram. He had nowhere to turn. His only hope was to be arrested. There is no home, home left. Right, uh, uh, a homeless person then finds a place either in a jail or an asylum, uh, uh, and and his hope was that he would be sent to jail. He's not sent to jail, and for the next day, when he early in the morning, when he symbolically picks up salt after bathing in the sea, uh, he thought now, and the sergeants wait. Nothing happens, so they they keep enacting this drama for 10 days in different parts of the coast, Uh, different people go and it's much later, it's only after 10 days that the British finally find it in themselves to say enough's enough. Let's give this man some peace, pick him up at midnight and that's what they do. But there is actually a, a great limbo movement possibly that's happening and that's when he they, they devised these salt raids on the, on the salt works at Dharasana. Yeah, it was a very strange inaction of the British, which then Gandhi, of course, exploited.
0: So what was holding them back? They were scared of the reaction, the public reaction?
1: They were clearly not being able to think this through because they were hoping that there would be violence and there was no violence that they they were hoping that they would be able to provoke people in into a chauri chaura like situation and gandhi would again be forced to withdraw none of those things happen uh, so there um, there is no plan c right so so they they take time to think this through and then finally pick him up
0: you know let me ask you a somewhat mischievous counterfactual could this mm. have happened anywhere but gujarat Did Gandhi's special connection with Gujarat and his intimate knowledge of every village in Gujarat make it, I mean, we know that he did Champaran a decade earlier and he operated in all parts of the country. But did his special connection with Gujarat make this so iconic?
1: Partly yes. And I'm saying partly yes. Um, And the yes part is because the kind of organization that was required for the march. And the intimate knowledge, um, and also that you needed villages which were largely prosperous. Let's there has to be a surplus in each village to accommodate the marches because they were not carrying their food. So the both the knowledge and the political economy of Gujarat was necessary. My hope is and 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 i'm saying my hope is that it would have been possible because it does become possible much later in noakhali it does become possible in a very different way in bihar in 1947 both in bengal and in bihar that the man walks uh, and, and 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 does something that we never imagined uh, one person was capable of and which is what mount patton says that we have 55000 soldiers on the punjab border and we have one person army in east bengal and and that one person is more effective than the security forces of the empire now i think it would have demanded much greater out of him it would have demanded a different kind of preparedness he couldn't you know he could not have uh, assumed certain kinds of things or certain latent knowledge that you are required to have
0: what happens after the march and after he's arrested? This is the inauguration of the civil disobedience
1: movement. Oh, there is festival. There is festival of disobedience. I can't think of any other situation either in Indian history or history of the 20th century where there is such massive celebration of disobedience. And it is that the British jails are overflowing with men and women. They don't know what to do with arrested Satyagrahis. Finally, they come to a situation that you were picked up, put in a police van, and left outside the village. And then everybody trooped back in. Next day, you enacted the same thing. I think when people say it broke the back of the empire, it is this that the coercive power and the fear that we have of state, whether it's our own state or the state of a colonial nature, is broken, And that's true freedom because the only thing that holds us back is fear of punishment. And once that fear of punishment, of imprisonment, of loss of life, of property goes away and you actually begin to think of prison as a palace or as Gandhi says, as a mandir, as a temple, as a place of, of, of worship, of something to be proud of, um, you have achieved... Um, great inner freedom, and then political freedom then has to follow.
0: So psychologically, it may have been emancipatory, as you are suggesting. But politically, given that the goal that the Congress has set was Purna Swaraj, why was it that the disobedience movement begins to fade away in a year or two. By 1932, the movement is not able to retain its momentum, isn't it?
1: I don't think political movements can retain that level of highs in any case. It requires a daily orchestration to, to do that. You have to keep infusing new things. And I think also the capacity of people to make continuously make sacrifices of political nature, of giving up your livelihood, going to jail... All of that has a, a limit. Not everyone um, can be in jail for six years and not worry about what's going to happen to my family or to my livelihood. So it's natural that political movements have ebbs and that's why if you look at if, if you look at step back and see, there are only three points in which you have large national level movements. you have the non-cooperation, you have the civil disobedience and then you have the quit India. In between, you have huge amounts of numbers of various localized provincial struggles, struggles specific to a community, to an act on situation of land revenue. All of these give us a sense of a national movement. But a nationwide movement is is sustained only for a small period. So I think that was um, both inevitable and in some ways nice. Because um, it it is these moments which allow you to then begin to renegotiate, consolidate the ground that you've done. And therefore, the second roundtable conference, which people think was a great failure, but was a great success in one thing, which is what Churchill realized is that the empire was willing to negotiate with one person.
0: That's fascinating. The fact that even if it did not meet that immediate political goal, one, it represented the deepening of nationalist consciousness. Two, you were suggesting it liberated people from fear. The Mahatma emerged as this singular point of resistance and contact that the empire had to deal with. Yes.
1: And which would have been very humiliating for the empire.
0: So looking back, how would you place and where would you place the Dandi march in the broader arc of India's freedom struggle?
1: I think one of the most sublime moments. But, I mean, politically, I think personally for Gandhi, Noakhali was far more important. And and then he is not even with seventy eight people. He's alone. There is him and Manu, and and Professor N K Bose, three people walking for fifty two days through riot ravaged, blood stained Noakhali, trying to bring sensitivity and sensibility back to the subcontinent, not only the people of Noakali. That was, I think, far greater, far more heroic and I think far more important for India today than the Dandi March. But if you were to look at political movements and history of political movements, Dandi March will be remembered as one of the great moments.
0: Thank you so much for so vividly reconstructing uh, this march, the preparation that went into it, why Gandhi came up with the idea and its subsequent impact. Uh, This has been educative for us and I'm sure for our listeners.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Stay with us as we continue this journey and explore India's freedom struggle. In the next episode, we look at the Government of India Act 1935 and the 1937 provincial elections. Thank you. This episode of 1947, Road to Indian Independence, was conceptualized and hosted by Prashant Shah. It was produced by Deepthi Ahuja. The sound design and editing is by Amrinder Singh. For more updates on this podcast, follow HD Smartcast on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn. To listen to more such podcasts, log on to htsmartcast.com. This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.